Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. So how is it that one McDonald's-sucking, vulgar, half-crazy, ignorant, selfish, fraudulent son of a bitch gets to decide uh, whether the planet burns up or not? How did, it, how did it work out that way? How many people are there on Earth? Seven and a half billion, something like that? And in any way, you know, they're talking about the, uh, the Paris Climate Accords. How is it that uh, there are like, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 people, heads of state that uh, get to decide these things? I think in other democracies, maybe in parliamentary democracies, which my son used to study all this stuff a lot. He says parliamentary democracies are in many ways more democratic 
than our democracy is. I don't know. But uh, maybe it's in other words, maybe they have curbs. Maybe they have uh, congressional, uh, complete congressional approval. But in this country, how is it that one man, uh, I mean, for better or for worse, one man seems to have decided, Mr. Obama, mm-hmm. that we should be in on the Paris Accord. But how is it that one man could decide for all of us? How many, how many people in this country? 330 million people? How could he decide for all Americans that we're withdrawing from the climate accord? There's something so wrong with that. Do we have to take another long look at what, what democracy actually means? I just don't get it. I don't know how it came to that. I don't understand how one person can do a thing like that. Um, it's beyond me. Anyhow, <clears throat> I'm sure I'll have many more, um, many more uh, questions and complaints about uh, various things as the show goes on. So in the uh, few remaining shows that I have left and, and you have left to listen to before the earth actually overheats and turns into a frying pan, um, let us talk about some things here. Over the weekend, I was watching a couple of uh, ball games, baseball games. And uh, it was Memorial Day. And in honor of Memorial Day, remembering members of the military who died in combat, um, this started, uh, by the way, sometime around the Civil War. A couple of years after the Civil War was the first celebration of Memorial Day. And I think, I'm pretty sure, and I didn't read all the Wikipedia article, that it, uh, <clears throat> that it included um, soldiers from both sides. But uh, so Memorial Day. And... Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deep, um, you know, dignified or forget about all the, uh, you know, the sales and everything like that. I mean, that's, there's no way of, uh, of preventing, uh, business large and small from cashing in on, um, absolutely everything from, uh, the, um, you know, the birthdays of presidents who, uh, tried to eradicate slavery to, uh, to the millions of people who died fighting in wars. <laughs> and for a lot of people, I guess, it's just uh, an excuse to uh, have a cheaper um, cash return, a bigger cash return on a new Honda. I, I don't know, but you know, that's an old story about America. So uh, this country uh, is capable of turning almost any uh, important uh, human um, celebration or um, remembrance into uh a cheap uh, bargain, but um, <clears throat> Major League Baseball. And yeah, back to the point. Uh, so we're remembering members of the military on Memorial Day who died in combat, uh, fighting overseas to, um, <clears throat> in many cases, to actually keep the world safe from utter tyranny and slavery. In some different cases, uh, fighting overseas for reasons that weren't very clear to a lot of people, and sometimes just downright immoral. But Major League Baseball decided to dress every team over the weekend in green camouflage. I mean, at least the hats and the socks. It looked ridiculous. I mean, it looks absurd. Uh, this, this blending of big business and, the American, and American sports with patriotism and the military, um, it's really, uh, it's, it's more than it's ever been, more than I remember it. Um, the, uh, has it always been this way, though? I mean, really. I mean, am I just noticing something and I'm thinking it's getting worse? Um, Maybe it is, though. Maybe it always has been this way. I don't know, Uh, especially when we had troops overseas in a war. I'm sure it was this way. But I remember when I was a kid, I mean, there was Memorial Day. 
and there were all these holidays. Um, but the teams dressed in their uniforms. They just had their uniforms on. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think there was enough money and enough organization to uh, dress people in different uniforms all the time, depending on what holiday it was or what celebration or what memorial. But um, they just showed up in their uniforms. They didn't need to dress the part to be the part. I mean, it was Memorial Day. A lot of these guys had been veterans or they uh, lost family members during the war. This is guys from the, like the 50s or even into the 60s. I mean, they grew up in, uh, in a certain kind of place. And some of them had fought in World War II, you know. Uh, I guess some of the, uh, the soldiers uh, from Vietnam wound up being Major League Baseball players. But they just showed up and they played the game and they had their feelings and there was a flag on the field and there was... Um, you know, a celebration, and it was uh, it was a time to just uh, to think about it all. But uh, not all this, not all this um, branding. It's almost as if the branding covers up an emptiness, a lack of actually remembering people who died overseas in the war. I don't know, and certainly I can understand Memorial Day. I can understand uh, celebrating World War II and maybe even the Korean War, but everything after that, especially Vietnam, and then the wars later on. And this is in no way before I go any further here. To say, I mean, I'm completely, I'm completely unqualified to uh, uh, to cast vast uh, moral and even sometimes political judgments on the various wars and the things we fought. But there is something, as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of us, a lot of people listening, are concerned, where you feel like, as a citizen and as a decent human being and as an American, uh, a lot of these wars and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans, and um, Millions of other people over overseas have died in immoral, unnecessary, gratuitous uh, wars. And there's just no escaping that. So, I mean, I grew up in a generation where World War II was the war. And there was, you know, I mean, it's not always clear cut. Of course not. Um, you know, there's complexities in everything. But, uh, you know, with Hitler and the, uh, of course, with the Japanese, I think it was even more, com- it was more complicated. But the evil Japs and the Nazis, you know, bad guys and good guys. And, of course, uh, during the game, there was the usual baseball commentator stuff. Sports announcers always do this stuff. And they do it more and more all the time. Um, the worst are hockey. <clears throat> I don't understand what that is. <clears throat> Sorry about that. My throat's not in good shape tonight. Um, I don't know about football or basketball. I don't watch much of that. But uh, uh, the baseball people, and especially the Yankees, <laughs> the Yankees have always been this way. Uh, they're the ones who started playing, uh, as far as I know, God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. But they're going, the baseball commentators are going on and on and on about our brave men and women, you know, um, uh, fighting overseas to defend our liberty and our freedoms. And, you, you know, you, is that what we've been doing in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and who knows where else for decades now, and really in other places for more than 100 years. Uh, It's an unending war. Is that what we're doing overseas, defending our freedoms? Yes, true enough, after 9-11, even before they identified Osama bin Laden and his followers, and of course now there's ISIS. These are crazy fundamentalists who are waging what they see as a holy war against the West. It's also very complicated, but they are crazy, and they are evil, and they blow up their own people. Did you read the other day about this bomb that went off during Ramadan, you know, during the Ramadan um, uh, celebration, and um, people were walking the streets in Afghanistan in Kabul? I don't understand how people 
live there without going completely out of their minds. And maybe a lot of people there completely are out of their minds. I mean, uh, a bomb went off. Some lunatic, believing he was going to go straight to uh, Allah, um, um, set off a bomb in a car, I think it was, murdered 100 people, blew them to pieces, and a couple of hundred other people, maybe more will die later, are completely disabled and traumatized for the rest of their lives. And this is, this is men and women and children basically going about their business. I mean, geez, you know. But uh, so, all right, so we went after Osama bin Laden, and if we went after him in like this focused way, and you remember how it was, you know, uh, Bush sent, uh, you know, he had bombs, special bunker-busting bombs and special ops troops and then um, a limited number of American troops and missiles to go after Osama bin Laden and, uh, you know, to, uh, to destroy him. So, uh, you know, but after that, it's all bullshit. It's all murder and power and oil and uh, rich people and power players. It has nothing to do with actual real people, nothing to do. I mean, over in Iraq, you know, you've got Saddam Hussein and dictators and monsters and, uh, you know, people in our government who basically own and run the country. And it's all, you know, for what? For what? Anyhow. So, I'm, anyhow, I'm watching the baseball games and, and I'm looking at people in the stands and it was Fleet Week in New York City. This happens uh, once every year in New York where um, a, lot of the, a lot of the Navy puts in, uh, usually up around the Hudson River or anchors out in uh, New York Harbor. And so the, play, the, the stands were full of soldiers and Marines. And um, um, it, there, was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of women uh, dressed up in uniforms. And I know this is gonna, a completely recurring theme on this show. But it's, very, it's still very hard for a guy in my generation. You know, old dogs don't learn new tricks too much. But uh, it's really difficult for somebody in my generation to see um, women in uniforms. And, of course, there are tens of thousands, I don't know, maybe hundreds of thousands, well, tens of thousands of women in uniform. And there it is. I mean, you know. But for my generation, it's hard to get to see this. And, you know, I understand it's equality. But in a way, uh, especially if you're talking about combat troops, and there's, there's women now being introduced into combat, and some have already been in combat, it's a kind of a sad equality to me. If that's equality, I mean, what kind of, yeah, it's equality for better or for worse, but it's kind of sad. And uh, actually, the other day on the, in, uh, in the New York Times, there was a front page photo of a woman in combat training down in Georgia someplace. Uh, it looked like it was the jungle. She had uh, this grim, angry look on her face. And she was dressed in a camouflage outfit. And her face was smeared with camel paint and dirt. Her head was shaved completely. And she's carrying this gigantic automatic weapon. It looked like something from a Starship Troopers. And it was really jarring. I mean, in Times New, you know, when they put a photograph on the front page, they know how it affects people. And um, at first I thought it was a man. I mean, you know, you had to look real close. And then you look at the caption. And it's a story, a whole big story on women in the military moving into combat roles. And this woman wanted to be an army ranger. Um, well, you know, why not? <laughs> These women have the same motives as the men in the service. You know, get a job, get training, have a career, join a group with a definite, like, a hierarchy. You know, we're saying everything, the whole world is so, in this country, is so cha chaotic, anarchy everywhere. Everybody does whatever they want. There's no rules, there's no laws, especially since this fat son of a bitch is in the White House. I mean, the day he 
the day he started being president was the end of anything. The, there's an office of governmental ethics. <laughs> and that is, that's really, uh, uh, instantly it became quaint and sort of amusing, the office of governmental ethics. I mean, uh, the day before, it was a functioning office that was considered very important, and people listened to it. Uh, and the day after he was uh, sworn in, Trump, as president on the Bible, um, it became irrelevant. And between him and his son-in-law and his, uh, his, uh, his sons and his, uh, his uh, daughter, Ivanka, you know, who's, uh, who's got uh, – she's a White House advisor. She has a government job as a White House advisor. And um, she has her shoe line and her fashion line being produced in places like China where people are working for like, you know, uh, $4 or $3 or $2 an hour or something like that. So this – you know, forget about ethics, but uh, – where was I? Anyhow, but yeah, so this woman, you know, women are going into combat training and they, they have, uh, they want to join a group. They want to be in a group. Maybe they come from a place where there was no mother, no father, where there were, uh, you know, there was no, there was no hierarchy. There's no order. And this is a group, the army has simple goals that can be achieved and uh, has the blessing of the government. Um, and they are fighting for a just cause, they believe. And it's patriotism, Right. They're bringing truth, justice in the American way to the rest of the world. That's what, they, that's what they believe. Of course, the British once thought it was a God-given duty to make the whole world England. And, uh, you know, also once upon a time, the Nazis, you know, uh, thought it was a, a very good idea that the whole world would be Aryan or dead. But there they are. I mean, so it's equality, you know, forever, whatever insanity and uh, complex motives. So these women are in the service. And... Um, and I was thinking of Memorial Day, Memorial Day. And there was parades. They showed parades in different on, on the news, on TV. Um, and I was thinking of Memorial Day parades past. Um, um, Memorial Day was a very big event when I was growing up after World War II. It took a, a, a big dip in the mid to late 70s after Vietnam. And then it came back up somewhat in the 80s with Reagan. But it was never what it was after World War II because everybody sort of got a little bit more... Um, aware and familiar with what was going on with our army over place, especially Vietnam. That changed everything. Uh, now that all this stuff about, uh, you know, the evil terrorists, and that uh, was once the evil communists, now it's the evil terrorists, and, uh, you know, the, people are trying to force it to be black and white again. But after Vietnam, it can never be black and white. That was not World War II. And, uh, but it's patriotism. Patriotism. Are you patriotic? I guess I'm not patriotic. I don't know. I remember a Memorial Day parade in, uh, in the town I was growing up, Laurelton, Queens, when I was a kid. And it seemed to me, when I remembered, it was always sunny, <laughs> which it probably was since there's climate change now. And um, uh, like, for instance, there's no spring. I don't know how it is where you are, but there's been no spring in New York at all. Just sort of generally cold and uh, rainy. We have a couple of days here and there, like one day today is a nice day, and it was another nice day the other day. Um, the parade in my little town, and this is the same for towns all over the, you know, the country, small towns especially. The parade in my town was really, it was big. Everybody, it seemed like everybody in the whole town was there. And it was a somber, you know, occasion, remembering the dead. And, uh, but it was dignified. And there were veterans, many combat veterans and veterans uh, of all sorts in uniform. And they had their uniforms on. And there was maybe a couple of drums, maybe a flute. And I was in the Boy Scouts. I was in the Boy Scouts. And it was like, you know, and being in the Boy Scouts was trying to, was being like a little soldier because the guys who led all the Boy Scout troops in the one I was in 
were all vets, uh, army vets from um, from uh, from World War II. And uh, I had my uniform. I had my wore my uniform, and I was a second class scout. I never got to be a first class scout because I could not swim. <laughs> you had to be uh, you had to be able to swim to be first class scout. Anyhow, I carried the American flag, this gigantic flag, and I was always a skinny little guy. And I carried this giant American flag, which was really hard. But I was just so proud to be doing this. I mean, there were a couple of reasons for it. One was because I was carrying the American flag. We were the good guys. We beat the Nazis and the Japs. And there I was carrying this flag. And uh, we were taught that we were the best country on earth. And, um, you know, we uh, had uh, emerged victorious over the worst people that ever lived. And we had saved the world. And I was just proud. And I was proud also to be one of the men. And I grew up in this family with uh, just women, basically. And I was proud to be one of these guys. And, and all these veterans around there and people I'm standing next to and talking to later on, these are guys that we were in awe of. We were in awe of. Um, so, uh, you know, these are the guys who beat the bad guys, the real bad guys. So um, it was a wonderful thing to be doing. Patriotism. It was a big thing during World War II, and it, was, uh, it seemed like there was good guys and bad guys, and that was it. And um, we, were, um, we were patriotic, and everybody was patriotic. And uh, the men had lived through hell and come back. And uh, a lot of people um, remembered uh, the war years um, with mixed feelings, but they felt proud that they had did something, that they had done something. So it was patriotism. white and blue, my country and you. Goodbye, Mama, I'm off to Yokohama just to teach all those Japs, the Yanksano Saps, a million fighting sons of Uncle Sam, if you please. We'll soon have all those Japs right down on their Japanese. So goodbye, Mama, I'm off to Yokohama for my country, my flag and you. gone long. Say bye-bye, Mama, the land of Yamayama, until April, I guess, will be your address. On Christmas Eve, when Dad and I are trimming the tree, you'll do your share of trimming out on land and on sea. Say goodbye to Mama, you're off to Yokohama for your country, your flag, and me. Fighting sons of Uncle Sam, if you please. 
will soon have all those Japs right down on their Japanese. Goodbye, Mama. I'm off to Yokohama for my country, my flag, and you. Yes, indeed. God bless America. Patriotism. 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 When I was a kid, I loved America. Everybody I knew loved America, um, at least where I grew up. <laughs> if you didn't, uh, it was dangerous to even say anything like that. Nobody even, I, I can't imagine anybody even didn't love America when I was a kid. I, I was given to understand by teachers and textbooks and just about everybody that I knew at all that the United States was the best country in the world. There was no doubt about it. We were the land of the free and the home of the brave. 
Um, it was the time Kate Smith, Irving, you know, and God Bless America. Kate Smith and God Bless America, which was written, that song was written after World War I by Irving Berlin and then sort of updated in 1938 uh, with the Nazis uh, becoming stronger all the time. Irving Berlin, who was an immigrant from Russia and the pogroms, and he was poor as dirt when he was growing up, and he made it big in America. He loved America, and why not? Why wouldn't he? But my grandmother loved America. She came over here with nothing, and my grandfa- all my grandparents, my grandparents loved the country. They came over here with absolutely nothing, lived on the Lower East Side, uh, you know, six to a room, and uh, made it. They became teachers and, you know, salesmen, lawyers, some of them. Uh, America was, they thought was America was favored by God. People believed, and you hear this all the time now still, that America is favored by God. There's always God, right? It's always God for almost every country. Uh, the West and its missionary, you know, the, coloni- the colonizers and the missionaries, the, the, the priests were right there along with the soldiers. And, uh, you know, while uh, European countries were colonizing the world and uh, just making enslaving, you know, whole, whole nations of people and thieving everything that belonged to them, stealing everything, uh, everything that they had, uh, destroying all these societies and cultures. And right along with, this, with the soldiers and the sailors, when they, when they came on the beach at some new place in the, in the quote-unquote new world, they planted the cross right there on the beach next to the flag. Right next to the flag was the cross. And before that, of course, there was the Crusades. Uh, more murder and rape and theft in the name of God, and this time even Jesus. And uh, now it's the Islamic jihadists, all for the glory of God. You know, in, in, in World War II, German soldiers, all the German soldiers um, had um, uh, inscribed on their, uh, stamped on their belt buckles, uh, the words, God mit uns, God mit uns. Uh, God is on our side, German soldiers while they were attempting to uh, take over the whole world and uh, murder everybody. Um, But still, when I was growing up and before I went to high school and college and learned a little bit more about American history, you know, it was patriotic. Um, And um, during the years, you know, when I visited places upstate New York and New England, Connecticut and Maine, you know, many towns, the memorials are always in the town square, mostly from World War I, World War II and Korea, uh, and then sometime in the 80s, I think, or the 90s, they added plaques, added to the plaques in the names of uh, uh, the men who died in Vietnam. And maybe now, of course, they have uh, the names of the men who died in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then, you know, all of this. And then you skip uh, about 15 years ahead of, uh, ahead of this time when I was a kid. And then you're smack in the middle of Vietnam. That's Vietnam. Then Vietnam shows up and changes everything. Um, I went to Hofstra College out on Long Island. It was a very, very conservative place, Nassau County. And I was in, uh, the president of the Young Democrats. It's not such a big deal. It was like 12 people in the club. <laughs> there would never be more people in the Young Democrats Club in Nassau County. I mean, it was an extremely conservative Republican place. And um, when it got to be 1965 or 1966, <clears throat> you know, I was, uh, you know, leading campus uh, uh, demonstrations against the war. And again, these demonstrations were about six people. We set up a card table with uh, leaflets and things about how, trying to explain to people how this was a wrong war and how it was immoral and unnecessary. And um, 
this is just around the time our war over there was expanding, 65 and 66. And people, but people back in this country, at least in an older generation, and other people, um, you know, still saw nothing but black and white. This is the way it always was. America, uh, World War II, uh, we needed to stop this time the godless communists is who we had to stop, just like in Korea before that. But this time was, you know, it was the Chinese communists and who knows, the Russians are involved. <clears throat> and I had lots of trouble out there. I mean, uh, there was a, our ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps, at Hofstra, and it had to be, you had to be in it. You had to be in there um, because uh, Hofstra had leased the land on which the college was built for some 99-year lease, and the only requirement from the Army was that every male who went to my college had to be in uh, ROTC and do drills and uh, weekend, whatever it was, training upstate someplace. Uh, there was a student colonel in ROTC, and basically it was you know, all these people were the same as the football buddies. Once again, like sports in the military, uh, and uh, they were pretty stupid. <laughs> they were pretty stupid, but so what? And um, they were not interested in free speech, which is the first time I came up against people who were talking about fighting the godless communists to protect our freedoms and our liberties. And here I was expressing. Uh, my opinion, using my uh, God-given right uh, in America, my First Amendment right to uh, to uh, have free speech, the most important amendment there is in the uh, in the Bill of Rights, and they weren't interested in that. So they were um, they were always like you know trying to smash. The, they'd take the leaflets and tear them in half, throw them in the air. They would kick the table over. This went on and on and on. And I I was um, I was very much against the war during that time and even afterwards, but. Even though I was, you know, dead set against the war for, I think, very good reasons, I always felt guilty that I avoided the draft and let other people go over there and suffer and die in my place. There was, I could never escape that. And I did. I did avoid the draft. I had a, a letter from a psychiatrist saying that I was incapable of, uh, you know, and I got 4F, 4F. And here, to be really honest about this, when I think back on it, <clears throat> How much of this, I'm, it's a question I ask myself, I'm sort of saying it out loud, how much of this opposition to the war uh, was my politics and my moral feelings about killing, especially killing people who just were, you know, just fighting for their country the way we once fought against the British? Well, yeah, I think there was a fair amount of political feeling and moral feeling about it, but how much of this was just my own personal fear of just traveling far away? I never went very far from my house for, that's a whole other show. I never wandered too far from my house. And going into a jungle and uh, <laughs> after having lived in Queens and being very uh, psychosomatic and worried about every little thing that happens, going into a jungle and risking my life, uh, how much of it was that, you know? And to be honest, just to be in the company of men. I mean, I was, I was it, to me, that was completely alien and frightening. I mean, there was really no males around. I was, brought up, I was brought up so much by women. I was raised so much by women. I was such a mama's boy that all my life, uh, this is true, this is a true thing. Maybe it's more information than you need to know. But all my life, um, up until even recent times, whenever I go and fill out a form, like in a doctor's office or something like that, and you're checking off everything, putting your name in, your social security, whatever it is, and it says male or female, I had this, just the slightest hesitation, you know, uh, when I when I when I check off, then I check off male, you know. But 
this is how much uh, women dominated the house and the whole family that I lived in. Um, my uncle, who lived next door to me, actually had been in the Navy for the entire duration of World War II, but he was not inclined to be doing much fathering. It wasn't in him. He didn't feel like it. He didn't want kids anyhow. He was a nice guy. He was a, actually in some ways a wonderful man, but he was not interested in uh, taking over the role my father had abandoned. And my father and I, uh, my father and I, jeez, um, you know, he, my father was permanently bitter and angry because he had been turned away. I mean, he was angry. He was an angry guy anyhow. But he had been turned away uh, by the army when he went to join up to fight the Nazis because he had a bad back. He had disc trouble in his back. And uh, he really did. He had a terrible back. And although it came and went, so even uh, during the war, uh, people would see him. He was a big, strong guy, big, strong, and sort of formidable-looking guy. And he, uh, second best to being able to be in the Army, he worked for the Army Corps of Engineers back in this country. He built dams uh, upstate New York. Uh, he worked for a long time because he was a very, very good chemical engineer trying to develop um, artificial uh, alcohol, you know, uh, artificial alcohol to, uh, to use and, arti you know, artificial rubber, all these kinds of things. And he was very good at it. But um, he was like permanently bitter, completely bitter about this. And of course, he and I had, uh, and I think this actually, um, it fueled, along with his generation's patriotism. He was a World War II guy, patriotic, you know, um, when I was uh, against the war, along with his, you know, natural patriotism from that generation, uh, this being rejected from the army, it fueled his anger. Um, because when I was so anti-war in his 60s, uh, he and I had violent arguments. I mean, violent arguments where I'd stomp out of the house and he'd call me a communist and I'd call him, um, I don't know, some name, like a, a, a capitalist, uh, you know, a goon, <laughs> me and my father. Uh, this, but this happened like a huge civil war all over the country in the 60s, if you remember this. There were the patriots on one side and the treasonous commie sympathizers on the other. There was no, there was no in-between. Uh, even when I was working at Sirius, when I worked at Sirius XM uh, not so long ago, there was a Patriot channel and uh, a left channel, right? You were either on the Patriot channel and you were a Patriot or you were on the left channel, and God knows what you were. So the, yes, there was a giant split in the country, in this society, in the mid to late 60s and even in the early 70s until it became more obvious to everybody and more... People were more aware of what was going on, and more and more um, bodies were coming back. It was a split, really, between generations and classes, and, of course, always the races. Uh, the middle and the western and the southern part of the country, and the east and the west coast, big split. Small towns, the big cities, colleges and towns, all this kind of thing that you could, you know, you could easily imagine or you might remember. Um, Black men and poor white men were a disproportionate number of the men who served in Vietnam. Way disproportionate. Uh, I remember when I worked in the probation department in Brooklyn, um, the court was off, uh, was, uh, you know, the court was um, uh, mostly black guys. It was mostly black guys. Uh, this is Brooklyn Criminal Court. And uh, they were, uh, if they were convicted of misdemeanors, this is what it used to happen. This is like 1968. Uh, if they were convicted of misdemeanors or n less serious felonies, they were offered by the judge a choice right there in court. You could stand there and hear it every single day, 10 times a day, a choice of jail or Vietnam. 
jail or Vietnam. And there was actually an army recruiting uh, kiosk right there in the lobby of the court. So they would be sentenced. Uh, handcuffs would come off because a lot of them had been brought in from holding, holding pens, is what they called them. And they would be uh, taken by a court officer, sign up right then and there for the army, and wait for a bus and drove them off to an induction center. That's what happened. This is, this is, you know, this is Vietnam, right? It was not, uh, it was not citizen soldiers, did you actually, you know, joining up to fight an evil foe. This was much more complicated. This is not World War II. And um, I mean, whoever came up with a vol- the idea of a volunteer army after World War, after Vietnam, sometime in 1974, was it Nixon? I don't know who it was. It was a stroke of nasty, evil genius because it was the beginning of the end of, um, of the military uh, being responsible or subservient to the will, the democratic will of the people. And it made, it made whoever was the president then, from then on, from then right up until now, it made whoever was the president a kind of a dictator who could use the army as a personal weapon. And you see it happening all the time. It's happened since around 1974. Um, without any true connection to congressional approval or the will of the people, the real will of the people of the country. Um, anyhow, but there was a war in this country. There was like a, a crazy, like a civil war and uh, tremendous battles went on between people. Um, you know, riots, uh, National Guard troops uh, uh, lost control out in Kent State in Ohio and they actually shot some uh, student protesters. There were people... Whole families were arguing with each other. People, you know, avoided the draft and uh, people, it was an extraordinarily awful time. It was like a civil war because the government was not listening at all to really what the will of the people was. And finally, like I, like I say, when all the, uh, the body, uh, bodies came back in the coffins and people uh, started to wonder what we were doing over there and we were losing uh, as we should have, unfortunately, and I'm sorry to say that once again for anybody who's listening who was in Vietnam or, you know, suffered there or people who know people who died there. Uh, but it was a war back here as well as over there. And uh, this is the kind of stuff that you would hear all the time. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret Silver wings upon their chest These are men, America's best One hundred men We'll test today, but only three when the Green Beret trained to live off nature's land, trained in combat and a hand, men who fight by night okay. and day, courage take. Well, one thing to do is we're going to skip uh, the last song. Their chest. These are men, America's best. Yeah, we're going to skip that. How many? 100 men. 
we'll test today But only three Win the green beret Back at home A young wife waits Her green beret Has met his fate He has died For those oppressed Leaving her This last request Put silver wings On my son's chest Make him one Of America's best He'll be a man They'll test one day Have him win Ask my reaction to long hair or beards on young people. Some great men have worn long hair and beards. George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. If to you long hair or a beard is a symbol of independence, if you believe in your heart that the principles of this country, our heritage, is worthy of this display of pride that all men shall remain free, that free men at all times will not inflict their personal limitations of achievement on others, to demand your own rights as well as the rights of others and be willing to fight for this right, you have my blessing. You ask that I not judge you merely as a teenager, to judge you on your own personal habits, abilities, and goals. This is a fair request, and I promise I will not judge any person only as a teenager. If you will constantly remind yourself that some of my generation judges people by their race, their belief, or the color of their skin, and that this is no more right than saying all teenagers are drunken dope addicts or glue sniffers. If you will judge every human being on his own individual potential, I will do the same. You ask me if God is dead. This is a question each individual must answer within himself. With a warm summer day with all its brightness, all its sound, all its exhilarating breathiness just happen? God is love. Remember that God is a guide and not a stormtrooper. Realize that many of the past and present generation, because of a well-intentioned but unjustifiable misconception, have attempted to legislate morality. This created part of the basis for your generation's need to rebel against our society. With this knowledge, perhaps your children will never ask, Is God dead? I sometimes think much of mankind as attempting to work him to death. You ask my opinion of draft card burners. I would answer this way. All past wars have been dirty, unfair, immoral, bloody, and second-guessed. However, history has shown most of them necessary. If you doubt that our free enterprise system in the United States is worth protecting, if you doubt the principles upon which this country was founded, that we remain free to choose our religion, our individual endeavors, our method of government, if you doubt that each free individual in this great country should reap awards commensurate only with his own efforts, 
then it's doubtful you belong here. If you doubt that people to govern us should be selected by their desire to allow us to strive for any goal we feel capable of attaining, then it's doubtful you should participate in their selection. If you are not grateful to a country that gave your father the opportunity to work for his family, to give you the things you've had, and you do not feel pride enough to fight for your right to continue in this manner, then I assume the blame for your failure to recognize the true value of our birthright. Now, I would remind you that your mother will love you no matter what you do, because she is a woman. And I love you too, son. But I also love our country and the principles for which we stand. And if you decide to burn your draft card, then burn your birth certificate at the same time. From that moment on, I have no son. Yes, indeed. It was a very, very hard time, <clears throat> a very crazy time. And this is uh, the kind of sentiment that a lot of people felt, especially from the older generation. And, you know, patriotism. There's a patriotic guy for you, right? That's patriotism. Uh, you can burn your draft card, burn your birth certificate as well. Love it or leave it. Get out if you don't like it. When you look at the history of the world, patriotism is inextricably entwined with violence. And uh, has there ever... I. You know, yeah, I know, um, all of world history. But America is an astoundingly violent country, has an amazingly violent history. I mean, just uh, in our own country and overseas. There's no need to go into great details about it, but everybody understands that. It's an ex extraordinarily violent country. Even to this day, we sell most of the uh, of the weapons in the world. We just signed a contract with the... Uh, Saudis to give them more billions of dollars worth of jets and everything, which, which they are using to murder everybody in Yemen. But there's always guns. You grow up with guns. I mean, even though I grew up in a city where there wasn't any hunting, there was always toy guns. Everybody had a toy gun. Although the veterans, interestingly enough, in where I grew up, didn't want any part of guns. They had enough from World War II. We had water guns. We had cap guns. Uh, and you put that. I loved the cap gun. You put the roll of caps uh, and put it into their little revolver there. They were all Western uh, cowboy revolvers, right? Uh, sometimes they didn't all go off, but there's that wonderful smell of gunpowder. I have to say, I loved it. It was like firecrackers. And we play uh, war, you know, World War II, or cowboys and Indians, for God's sake. Can you imagine how ignorant and horrible? But that's what we played, cowboys and Indians. The Indians were the evil, bad people, and uh, the cowboys were the good guys. It wasn't actually even cowboys in the first place. It was, uh, you know, the U.S. Cavalry. And we play, you know, we shoot each other. Bang, bang, you're dead. <laughs> and so we say, but I don't want to be dead. I was dead last time. It's your turn to be dead, you know. Uh, bad guys, good guys, bad guys, good guys. That's what we knew, it was bad guys and good guys. Um, you know, uh, cowboys and Indians, Jesus. You know, all that stuff. The Redskins, the Savages. And we saw all the movies and the TV shows, you know. They were very big in the 50s. Why was that? Why were they so big in the 50s? Why was everything so simple? After war? Maybe it was after World War II. Then it was the communists, you know. They were, you know, the Russians, the evil Russians and the Chinese communists. And uh, on TV, there was all these shows we watched. Uh, we watched uh, The Lone Ranger, uh, which I first heard on the radio. That's how old I am. Zorro, the Cisco kid. Um, you know, hey, Cisco, hey, Pancho. 
And this was this is before the wall now. <laughs> we could never have a show like that right now. It wouldn't be patriotic, right? It's too un-American to show a Mexican hero. There was Wyatt Earp, the Rifleman, Hopalong Cassidy, Wild Bill Hickok, you know. Um, and, of course, the, you know, the comic books, which was all G.I. Joe, and it showed you evil, uh, you know, sort of animalized-looking Koreans and Chinese. Uh, later on, I had uh, more guns. And I liked guns better than other people. I had my own issues with anger, and I loved guns. I had a Daisy air rifle and a BB gun. You know, that was a BB gun. A, P, a CO2 pellet gun, which was really nasty. It was close to 22. And uh, I was surprised I was allowed to own such things. But uh, maybe they figured in my family it was a good idea to let me blast away in the backyard rather than get out in trouble, get in trouble out in the world. And uh, later on when I was a probation officer, I actually had a badge and a gun. And I owned other guns. And uh, I, uh, I, I, I had a love affair with guns. Um, who could explain these things? Well, I could explain it, but that's a whole other show. Of course, I gave all these, I had these guns, I gave them away when my daughter was about two years old. They were in the closet. And of course, there's always American guns. This, this uh, holy second precious, you know, the Second Amendment, the precious Second Amendment, which a lot of idiot Americans think is more important than the First Amendment. Uh, people don't get a very good education. Maybe they never did. Uh, Second Amendment. Every toddler has a right, uh, God-given right, to carry an automatic weapon, right? Uh, America, right? Always gangs, uh, men playing paintball, and now all this single-shooter stuff, all this crazy single-shooter stuff, you know, where people, uh, millions of men in their 20s, I think mostly in their 20s, teens and 20s, are murdering other people in war or monsters on other planets. It's just, there's no end. Boom, boom, boom. Bang, bang, you're dead. I don't know. In the end... Maybe I'm not a patriot. Maybe I would have been if I had grown up during the time of Hitler in World War II, but maybe I'm not a patriot. I don't know. what. But uh, patriotism. Patriotism, I think, like unquestioning, unreflective uh, patriotism, something like that, it's like unquestioning, unthinking faith in some religion where you become a fundamentalist. This kind of stuff often... Uh, leads to the worst kinds of atrocities. If you look at the history of the world and our own history, it leads to the worst sort of atrocities. Everything's a crusade, and it merges into, into, into you know, um, secular patriotism, too. Ah, well, patriotism. You have to consider who it is and what it is. Every single time, people's lives are at stake. People's lives are at stake. And right now, we are not, and for a long time, we are not doing good in the world. We are the bad guys. Most of the time. Hard to say, but that's the truth. Along the road to sweet Osai, Haru, Haru. Along the road to sweet Osai, Haru, Haru. Along the road to sweet Asai, a stick in my hand and a spot in my eye. I heard a doleful damsel cry. Johnny, I hardly knew you with your guns and drums and drums and guns. With your guns and drums and drums and guns. With your guns and drums and drums and guns, the enemy nearly slew you. And you look so queer, my darling dear. Johnny, I hardly knew you 
Where is the eye that looked so mild? Hooroo, hooroo. Where is the eye that looked so mild? Hooroo, hooroo. Where is the eye that looked so mild that my poor heart you first beguiled? Why did you skedaddle from me and the child? Johnny, I hardly knew you With your guns and drums and drums and guns Hooroo, hooroo With your guns and drums and drums and guns Hooroo, hooroo With your guns and drums and drums and guns, the enemy nearly slew you. And you look so queer, my darling dear, Johnny, I hardly knew you. Where is the leg with which you run, hooroo, hooroo? Where is the leg with which you run, hooroo, hooroo? Where is the leg with which you run When first you left to carry the gun Oh, I fear your dancing days are done Johnny, I hardly knew you With your guns and drums and drums and guns With your guns and drums and drums and guns And you look so queer, my darling dear Johnny, I hardly knew you Well, you haven't an eye, you haven't a leg You haven't an eye, you haven't a leg You haven't an eye, you haven't a leg You're an eyeless, bowless, chickenless egg And you'll have to be put with the ball to bag Johnny, I hardly knew you With your guns and drums and drums and guns With your guns and drums and drums and guns With your guns and drums and drums and guns The enemy nearly slew you And you look so queer, my darling dear Well, I'm happy for to see you home, Haru. I'm happy for to see you home, Haru. I'm happy for to see you home. All from that island of Ceylon So low in the flesh, so high in the bone Johnny, I hardly 